Welcome to the Valid Podcast. You dig what I'm saying? Vulnerability, accountability, leadership, intentionality, and demand. All aspects of life, and we're just here to talk about it. Now, today, and that's valid. Today, I'm very excited uh, to introduce to you guys Monica Cannon Grant. Uh, I'm going to let you tell tell everybody your titles because it may be a lot still. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm going to get it down to one title. I'm working on it. But um, I don't even know where to start. Uh, community activist, organizer, CEO of Violence in Boston, mom all the things i um i'm a mom of six for i gave birth to to i adopted um and yeah that, i think those are all my titles you want you want a quick little like bio <laughs> definitely i want the people to know who you are if they don't know who you are but if you're from boston you probably should know who you um, are <laughs> i will hope so at this point right so Two votes, 2017, organized 45,000 people to oh, protest after what happened in Charlottesville. Can you hear me? Yep, yep, yep. You're back. Um, November 2017, this woman who was an amazing friend of mine named Zena Merchant paid for me to become a nonprofit, was still broke. 2018, did some more protests in response to straight pride because it was really just white supremacists. Um, 2019, more boots on the groundwork getting done around my son put a gun to his head pulled the trigger while i was standing next to him the gun jammed um 2020 i don't even know where to start the beginning of the year we fed 80,000 people in 15 weeks um in response to covid i got two pieces of legislation passed courtesy of Eric Gardner's daughter, Emerald, and Angie Curse, who was the wife of Andrew Curse, who died in the back of a police car in Schenectady. We got the Eric Gardner chokehold bill passed and the Andrew Curse Act passed. Um, June 2nd, organized 55,000 people in regards to, in response to George Floyd, Terrence Coleman, Burrell Ramsey, both who, the, the last two died at the hands of the police in the city of Boston. Um, Bostonian Social Justice Advocate of the Year, uh, Bostonian of the Year, Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, Top 10 Leader of the Year, Boston Celtics Hero Among Us, Boston Bruins Social Justice Advocate of the Year. All of that happened within the last six months. Um, and I think that's it. I think I touched everything. So you just been going. Oh, and the only Black person to ever make the front page of the Globe three times and I didn't kill anybody. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's what's up that's a lot man that's a lot but that's also good stuff and the stuff that we need in the city so i mean 2020 wasn't a great year for everybody but you did a lot of work you know you did a lot of work that's a big fact but we're gonna go ahead and jump into today's topic of conversation which is community violence in the city of boston you know and how it impacts youth you know i think it was important for us to talk about this especially because of the work that i just finished doing and because of where I live, you know, born and raised in Dorchester, you know, my mom is a Dorchester native, graduated from Dorchester High, and there's just things that we see in the city, you know, personally, I feel like a lot of us who live in the city, we have trauma in some sort of way, and people just don't always see it or understand it, because also, we can normalize it, you know what I mean, I always tell people, like, you know, shots ring out, there's times where I may go to the window instead of other people dialing back, you know, because that's just kind of normal to us, you feel me, so thought it would be great for us to talk about it and to me you're an expert (laughs) but you're a person that does the work 
You know, I think there's a difference in people who are up in these buildings and who make these decisions versus somebody who actually does the work, you know? So I thought it was really important to get you on here. Absolutely. I think it's important that we know, you know, oftentimes people be like, well, Boston isn't Chicago, Boston isn't Baltimore, Boston also is not the size of those cities. So that's an unfair comparison. Um, when we look at the number of people, so I have the data for 2020 and it's disrespectful. Like, so in 2019, we had 163 non-fatal shootings. 2020, we had 231. Um, we had 28 homicides in 2019, we had 45 in 2020. We had a total of 276 people be shot in the city of Boston in 2020. Those were more than 50% increases on both of those numbers. Um, and I think it's important to understand that the size of our city, that's, that's a problem. But you couple in the pandemic, you couple in PTSD, you couple in unemployment, you couple in poverty, you couple, couple in all the dynamics that are contributing factors to that, school closings, community center closings, people not being able to do the things that they normally do, no access to mental health care in a real way. A lot of people are not able to just jump on Zoom and get what they need. It's that face-to-face -face interaction that helps them to be able to cope. And I think that that plays a huge role. You know, violence is a symptom of poverty. And so part of the reason I started my organization was understanding that it was a symptom, but poverty is man-made. And so we can correct that error. And how do we do it in a way where we're servicing our people and not depending on government to do so? And so when I was an activist with Black Lives Matter for a short period of time, I learned how to grassroots fundraise. So I know how to raise money in spite of any organization ever giving me anything. Um, which puts me in an ideal position to be able to help take care of my community. So fast forward, we're getting ready to protest on MLK Day and, you know, gathering intel from the other side in regards to what's happening in this country right now, white supremacy. We know that one of the things they plan to attack is our food source. So last week I ordered five, five, 5,900 pounds of food that I pick up tomorrow with a U-Haul truck, because if we get in a situation, we got to be able to take care of our people. And I don't think people think like that. They think, oh, we'll be fine, or the government got us, but those are the same people that have done this to us. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just understanding yeah. what the Black Panthers represented and what that meant. Like, we policed ourselves at one time, we fed ourselves at one time, we secured ourselves, we built whole programs and educated our kids ourselves. And those things were stolen from us. And so that's where it comes from with me in regards to doing this work around violence prevention and just putting a social lens on it. I think when you look at the households of some of the young people who are shooting, there's so much despair, there's things missing. Somebody has failed them at some point in time. Oftentimes we flock to the victim, but if you're not talking to the shooter, you miss a whole population because before they were shooters, they were victims, that someone mm -hmm. failed. Something happened to trigger that and turn them into someone mm -hmm. who probably initially started defending themselves. And then, you know, once you kill one person, that type of trauma is a different type of trauma, right? And so mm -hmm. you're not about to sit down and have no conversation on no murder beef. You're not about to mitigate a murder beef. That's not how that works. But if you can begin to address the concerns and the things that are contributing factors, then you can minimize the harm. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the work that I do. Yeah, that, that's deep. <laughs> Honestly, I'm just saying, listening to you, like, damn, like, that is really what it all comes down to. And the fact that you have that drive to kind of take care of you, of us because I'm, I'm part of that people too you know people that live in the city and whatnot so the fact that you have the job to take care of us before anybody else like you said like 
you're looking out for us as far as other people. They're the ones who put us in this situation, you know? But I also want to go back to what you touched on as far as those stats, right? Where there's more homicides in 2020 than it was in 2019, right? And people think, oh, it's a pandemic. Everybody should be inside anyways, right? But they don't understand how COVID-19 can be a, a traumatic event for some people, you know, it can be something. So that's my, when people say that, my response is PTSD supersedes a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. So what I'm going through supersedes your stay in the house, stay in the house. What if my house is abusive? What if ain't no exactly. food in this house? Mm-hmm. You know what right. I'm saying? So when you put the contributing factors into play, I've been mm-hmm. catching so much heat because people are like, Monica, it's a pandemic. How are you doing in March? We can't all stay inside. What if Harriet stayed in the house? What if Rosa stayed in the house? At some point, there has to be somebody to say, listen, our people need help. What does that look like? So a lot of the things that I've been working on and establishing that I will end up doing a press release for in the next few weeks of things that I've obtained for violence in Boston are exclusive to our community because access is always the issue, right? And so we'll have like on-site healthcare where you can come and get a doctor's visit, mental health and STI training all in one location in the community and you ain't got to go all the way to the hospital. Or uh, young men 15 to 28 coming home from jail. We always say change your life, get a job, do something different. But if you ain't got no way to sleep, you can't think about none of that. If I don't know where I'm resting my head, stop telling me to go get a job. So I purchased housing. That's what I did. Um, when you talk about not having adequate access to health care, right? Black men are the highest at health disparities because they don't like to go to the doctor. But if you make it convenient, a one-stop shop, and then putting something in place where they have the support systems around them, it's kind of hard to ignore that, right? And then we'll have like a trailer um, on my location so that people can get COVID tested when you walk in my building, there's face masks, there's hand sanitizer, there's thermometers. We still got to be able to do this work. Everybody can't stay in the house. And we damn sure ain't about to solve violence prevention from in the house. Mm-hmm. That is the truth about it, man. I want to ask you, though, can you break down, like, what it looked like? What, what trauma can truthfully look like when you look at some people who are, like, in our community? Because I feel like some people don't understand it when they see, like, a... How do I put it? You could you could look at a kid and be like, oh, he's just a quote thug, right? Or oh, he's mm-hmm. a gang member, right? But you don't look at what's behind the picture where this kid has been potentially facing trauma, PTSD, like you say, right. you know, like what that can look like and what people should be aware of when they're talking to like individuals from, from the boss. So a couple of things. Oftentimes the kid that tries to be extremely tough is a kid that's Mm -hmm. trying to use something to hide something else. So that's always an indicator when they're trying to be super hard and you're talking to them and they got their head to the side and their lips curled up. Mm -hmm. And you're like, bruh, it's not that serious. You can't gangbang on bacon. Like, how you angry at 8 o'clock in the morning? That's not how that works, (laughs) right? So those are contributing factors. But it also looks like your happy-go-lucky friend that's smiling all the time, that's making everybody else feel good, and then they go home and they cry. And it's being Mm -hmm. able to recognize the two. It's also understanding that sometimes it's not what you say. Sometimes it's just your presence. I think a lot of times with trauma response, people think that when I get in here, I have to say something. But oftentimes you can say the wrong thing. Don't tell nobody that it was in God's plan. Don't tell nobody that they're resting now. And and just certain things you're not supposed to say because that's not helpful. Nobody want to hear that it was God's plan that they love one of their life. You know what I'm saying? And that's nothing against the good Lord, but those are just things you don't say. Sometimes it's your presence. Sometimes it's just sitting there letting a person know I'm here. Whatever that looks like, I'm here. 
Um, and it's being mindful and it's, it's being humble. When you go in, don't try to take over. Real trauma response is humble enough to analyze the room, read the room and see what the needs are. I don't mm -hmm. show up unless I'm requested. And when I do show up, I ask what the needs are. I don't come in offering anything. Because the other piece is, is you never want to put yourself in a situation where you're offering something that you can't follow through on. That's mm -hmm. the biggest thing that causes young people to disengage, the lying, the, the broken promises. So I come in with, how can I help? What is it going to take for you to feel supported in this moment? It's just, it's conversation, but it's also relationship. It depends on who's doing it and if it's coming from a genuine place. I think people don't understand that, specifically young people. They read you. They are better than the FBI when it comes to reading you. They do that little scan and they figure out if they're going to deal with you or not. And so your best bet is to come from a place of being genuine and honest. So when I come in, I lay all my cards on the table and then I tell them, listen, at the end of the day, you can Google me. And then after you Google me, let me know if you still want to talk because all my cards is on the table. I got white supremacists after me. I got black men after me. Um, grew up in Franklin Hill, raised my kids in Warren Gardens, and now I live in a different part of the city. None of that matters. I'm the person that's going to show up regardless. I don't represent no neighborhood. I represent helping my people um, and just laying my cards on the table. So I'm never in a situation where if you see me with somebody, you can attach that to me. And I think mm -hmm. that's the most important. But when it comes to trauma, it's very intentional. Sometimes trauma is just sitting there while they cry. Sometimes it's just letting them ramble on and talk. Oftentimes they may say, hey, can you come take me for a ride? Sit in the car. Don't say shit. Just drive unless they want to talk. Mm -hmm. But it's understanding that there's no one set way for people to deal with what they're going through. For me, when I go through depression, I get active. So I've literally had five miscarriages. Every time it happened, I mobilized. I realized that. Like I did a protest or I did some type of action or I organized some type of event. Because sitting still in that depression will drive you crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a Listen, you speaking nothing but facts right now. So if nobody is listening, please um, start whatever you're doing and listening as you're listening to this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think that that's very important because from what I hear from you is like you pay attention to yourself, right? And you pay attention mm -hmm. to others and it's being genuine in situations mm -hmm. when it comes to trauma, right? And so being as somebody who works in this in this field, you know, of clinicians, most of the clinicians don't look like me. You know what I mean? Most mm -hmm. of the clinicians are white clinicians. You feel me? So when I come through the door, it's like, you know, they, they're looking at me like you might just be here for a paycheck, like every other clinician or social worker or a therapist or whatever you want to call it, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm a kid from Dorchester as well. I get it. You know what I mean? I've seen it. So it's just a little bit different when I'm walking in from a whole different perspective, you know, but I think that's very, very, very important what you're touching on. I'm being genuine and being real. Like yeah. if you don't want to talk to me about your, if you want to just shoot the shit, then let's just shoot the shit. There's no, I don't want to sit there and ask you a thousand times, well, what's the darkest, deepest, darkest thing you've ever been to? Like right. I'm, that's just not what I'm here for, you know? And I think people don't understand that all the time, you know? And when people, People's lives are stolen from them, realistically, is what it is. So if you come if you come in and you say, you know, he's in a better place or, you know, you're not intentional about what it is that you say, it's kind of like, no, real, this shit really wasn't supposed to happen. You feel right. me? Like, that's just really what it comes down to. No, this shit was not supposed to happen. 
You know? The most you should say is, I'm sorry for your loss and I'm here. I, I, you know, oftentimes I've had people say stuff to me that made me want to punch them in their face. I never forget I lost, I lost a child and they were like, it was in God's plan. And I was like, who the hell are you to tell me what God's plan is? You know what I mean? Like, right. don't do that. And so it's, it's just being mindful, you know, and especially with our people, we've suffered through so much PTSD. Like you can't, you can't, you gotta be, you gotta be understanding of that and understand that our young people have seen so much. You think about the trauma in our households, you think about the trauma they face going to school, the trauma in the street, and then God forbid you're in this position where you lose somebody you love. That is a lot. And then from a clinician standpoint, if you're not from that community, you don't even know what that looks like. It's this poem that this child wrote in um, Washington, D.C., and it said, if I only had a pencil, and it talks about how um, I woke up in the morning and had to get our clothes out the hamper because mommy forgot to wash. I went to hit the light switch, but the lights didn't come on because mommy didn't get a chance to pay the bill. And then I had to get my sister ready because mommy left for work already. Um, and then we had to walk to school or take public transportation to school and something else happened. At the end of the poem, it says, I did all of that. And then I got to school and my teacher yelled at me for not having a pencil. It's understanding the dynamics that transpire before that person encounters you. And you don't know what they went through before they encountered mm -hmm. you. And it's understanding that black and brown kids go through a whole hell of a lot before they make it to school, before they make it to wherever they're going and being mindful of that. So before you jump down their throat about something so minor, it's checking in with them. It's doing check-ins. Hey, let's check in. What's going on? Is everything okay? Do you need some support in, in a certain area? Only teachers that do that are teachers who are from your community and understand what that looks like. Yes, very true. As a mom, like, how do you, you know, instill this type of, I don't even know the words to, to put it, but how do you instill that in your son? You know what I mean? Or, you know, your children in general, like, how do you instill that in them where they understand, you know, what they're walking into on a day-to-day -day basis, really? in this world so first off my kids is just as ratchet as everybody else's child let me just <laughs> go off and say that right there we're not about to act like the activist got the perfect kids my son is 22 he thinks he's a rapper um and we have conversations in between hennessy and marijuana um <laughs> my 19 year old is in her first year at umass dartmouth and she's trying to figure out life but she's an introvert and so i tell her whoever she's going to date is going to have to break into the house because she never leaves um and then my 17 year old is in her last year of high school and this is the only child i know that is late and a no show to virtual class um and then i have my little cousin who's 20 he's in his second year at umass dartmouth and all he cares about is ps5 but he's in class all of the time because he know he just he has no option his mom passed away from lupus and i took custody of him when he was 14. Um, then I have an older one who's 23. He's in his third year at Fitchburg State, but I only see him when he wants food and money. And then there's the two-year-old running around my house screaming, gang, gang, right? Um, and asking for <laughs> Twinkies. And so um, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I think one of the things I'm proud of is that me and my kids have an open communication process, policy, which means 
they feel extremely comfortable coming to me. And I was mainly worried about it with the girls just because I didn't have the best relationship with my mom. You know what I'm saying? So was very intentional about them being comfortable to come talk to me. We would use different words when we talk about sex. So we talk about sex and we call it your bus card. I'd be like, have you lost your bus card yet? They'd be like, nah, I still got it. Like those are the conversations that we have. Um, and just making it so that when they get to the point where they feel like they're ready, we can have a conversation and they do it from a place of safety. I can't tell them not to do it. I was a teen parent, you know what I mean? I'm not gonna be the hypocrite, but I also want you to be educated on what that looks like. Um, same thing with my son, he was my first, and I had him when I was 17. So I, the open door policy with him has been phenomenal to the point where it's a little uncomfortable because one day he come in the room and kind of snatching his pants down, trying to show me something because he thinks something wrong. Wasn't nothing wrong with him. But you come to the realization that, oh my God, this, shit, this kid want me to look at something and he ain't a little kid no more. And I don't think I want to look, you know? Um, <laughs> but you have to when you're the only parent in the house. So you, you know, knuckle up, do what you got to do. And then you, Later on, you go, oh, Lord Jesus, I hope that don't happen again. And what I will say that I'm proud of is this. My kids are, are fairly good kids, right? And it wasn't that they were better than anybody else's kids. It's just that I fought tooth and nail to keep them alive, given where, we were growing, where they were growing up in Roxbury. Like, when my son said he wanted to hang on the block, I went and hung on the block with him. It's, it's something different when your mother is on the block with you and your boys. You don't want to be there anymore. When... He yeah. was acting a fool in school. I sat in the back of his classroom for like five or six months. Bruh, you got one job and that's go to school. We're going to sit here together until you get it right. And so it's just parenting, right? Um, I think one of the things my kids didn't like was when I started activism and they started seeing the death threats. They started seeing the hostility and people attack me because they're on social media just like everybody else. So they see all of the things that transpired and me saying to them, you can't respond. I think that was the toughest thing for them. It was, you cannot respond. We're not responding to that. You just, you can't respond. But mm -hmm. outside of that child, you Google and find my son rapping on YouTube. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty dope though i can't even lie to you you know like you're just real about it and, you know you look at somebody where like you said you know been on the boston globe three times right without killing anybody as a black woman and all the things you do as a black woman and you live a regular life just like everybody else and people don't mm -hmm. may not be able to Listen, see that i be in the house cussing because i come in the house and he done smoke so much weed his damn kneecaps then came off and i'm like bruh like why does my house smell like this or he go out with his little friends on the weekend and he come in the house and eyes blush are red and he be in there mommy you know i love you i said listen don't let that hennessy get you in trouble go on in the room now sit down somewhere because <laughs> what can i say he's over age right and mm -hmm. as long as he's responsible, I have no complaints. But it's realizing mm -hmm. that, you know, oftentimes people try to categorize themselves as, oh, I've made it to this point now. Nothing happens and my kids are great and everything is not. That's not how, that's not real life. Mm -hmm. My kids are out here like everybody else trying to figure it out. The only difference is, is I'm their mama. And so they get a little bit more education on this and probably than some other kids. But I do do is like because of my relationship with them they bring their friends home so it gives me the opportunity to allow their friends that same policy if you can't go to your mom come talk to me mm -hmm. if you're yeah. going through something come yeah. talk to me i've had some of my kids friends come to me who had sti issues and didn't want to tell their mom and 
immediately take them to go get taken care of, make sure that they're straight and that their well-being is taken care of. Because if I'm the only person that you can depend on, at least you came to an adult and I can make sure you get what you need. And I think that's the most important piece. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you're transparent like that because it makes you feel more comfortable. You said you have your kids' friends come and speak to you when they have an issues and they feel like they can't go to their own parents. Like that transparency makes people feel comfortable and it just, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Like, I do too. I, I mean, that shit too. I respect it. They be like, Miss Monica, so-and-so is going on and you got to act like it don't bother you. And then I be like, Lord Jesus, these kids are so stupid. Why are they doing this? But you got to also remember <laughs> that you was a teenager, right? And you did some yeah. stupid stuff. And so when you function from a place of, instead of being judgmental, understand what it is to be that teenager who is going through something super fearful and they just want help to fix whatever is wrong and the last thing they need is to be screamed on judged right. or told how dumb they are and just receive help it's the same thing with working in in violence prevention when i was working for roca i used to violate the rules and bring young men home and have them sleeping on air mattresses in my house because they were breaking buildings to have somewhere to sleep at night and i didn't want them breaking into nobody's building that's 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 dedication honestly is what it really is right like sometimes people don't understand that you could be breaking the rules right but you're breaking the rules to protect somebody or to help somebody right. in a different kind of way right so realistically i get why it's a rule but if it keeps this kid from not doing what he's been doing then who are we hurt who are we hurting you know what and i mean those kids come looking for you later on like i just recently seen the young man who i did that for and I looked and I was, I called his name and he's like, oh my God, a sis. And he like literally tried to jump a fence to come where I was because when I tell you, I went to court and argued with a judge. Like, so what I need you to do is not lock him up and release him to my custody so I can help him get a job and help him get sustainable and do all of the things that he needs to do. Like I've argued with judges for young black boys and I'll do that shit again because understanding that once you get into that system, it's hard to get out so mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's the truth about it for real how would you like what advice would you give to young men and young women now because honestly the women gangs are going they're like they're out there women go through trauma too with the you know w- young women who lose their boyfriends their dads like all of that you know what i mean like what advice would you give to the youth or people who are trying to help the youth as far as receiving the help you know and i think doing the work that i'm doing now the biggest thing is them asking for the help. Nobody wants to ask for help, you know? And so I guess I'm coming to you and ask, like, how do we help them be comfortable with asking, not overgive, and make sure that they're they're safe, you know? So a couple of things. When you're offering the help, don't do it in a public way. Make them Mm -hmm. feel that they can come to you on their own. Nobody wants to be embarrassed. Um, And it's being cognizant of that, that for them, their reputation and image means a lot. And it's just being mindful of that. What I would say to, what I've been doing is, is just um, going around and letting them know, this is the services that I offer. If you ever need a help, just call me and just slide them my business card and wait for them to reach out. Nine times out of 10, it it takes them no time before you get a message asking you for help. Um, But also, be honest about what you can offer. Don't over offer because of what you're seeing that young person go through. Oftentimes we go in and we want to be Captain Saverho, and then you over exceed yourself. And 
then you end up causing disappointment, which causes a lack of trust. Be honest about what you can provide. In regards to what I would tell people providing service, be honest. Just be honest, be genuine, um, and don't be afraid to partner with people. I think that's one of the biggest issues in Boston is nobody wants to work together. We were talking about it before. Yep. Be genuine about working with the person. Don't just be, oh, she's popping right now. Let me get close to her. But mm-hmm. understand, I do this work for real. And the moment that I notice you ain't doing it next to me, I cut you off and keep it pushing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I function. In regards to what I would tell young people is, listen, we're doing the best that we can. A lot of people are parents and don't even know how to be parents. There's no manuals to it. I was blessed that everybody made it to the ages that they are. They fed and alive. That is a success story. Um, there's no handbook on parenting, just like there's no handbook on how to be a young adult. You're figuring it out and I'm figuring it out. I think open communication is necessary. Understanding that respect has no age limit. Um, young mm-hmm. people deserve just as much respect as those who are older. It can't be that I'm the adult and then you gotta respect me, but I can say whatever I wanna say to you. That can't be it. Um, and, and just being mindful of how blessed you are. I put up a post recently, it's so funny, young people and parents jumped on um, an open letter to 16 to 25 year olds of we not your friend. I tell my kids, I've been telling my kids that since they was old enough to talk, I'm not your friend. But what that means is, is, I will respect you as a person. There's open communication. But when you turn 18, my legal responsibility starts. So be appreciative of everything I provide to you after that age. Don't come in my house talking trash when you don't pay no bills. Being grown your own. Um, and yep, just my mama said understanding you don't have to be here. that <laughs> that part. Right. And so especially my kids, don't even get me started. You walking around the house in the coat that I bought and the clothes that I bought and you talk about you a grown man. No, you are not. You are a young adult in this hotel. And this is hotel, my motherfucking house. Okay. Um, you are a guest and everything I provide you after 18 is an amenity. It is not necessary. It is an amenity. When you get ready to turn the heat on freely, when you go in the refrigerator and you grab food and you ain't leaving a tip, that is an amenity. Just say thank you, be appreciative, do, do not be disrespectful. But it's happened, that real conversation. Like I had it with my daughter yesterday because I asked her to watch her two-year-old brother and she talking about how she's going to be busy. And I said, doing what? You in my house? School is on the laptop. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's the truth. Look, I ordered groceries and, and had them delivered. All the bills is paid. All you got to do is wash up and sit on the couch. <laughs> Oh, you know. <laughs> that's real this yeah it's it's real conversations but it's mm-hmm. having those real conversations but also not being disrespectful you don't have to dehumanize young people when you're talking to them and they deserve a level of respect and you have to hear their point of view too and i'm learning that especially with my son because that boy pissed me off and i'd be like you know what i'm gonna need you to leave um and come back when you get your mind right but it's understanding that in that moment, there has to be a de-escalation. And then we mm-hmm. come back to the table, we have a conversation and we figure it out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have one. I think I have one more question for you, but every time you talk, I just feel like I have more questions, but how do you take care of yourself? I mean, with everything going on and you know, all the things that you do, how do you take care of yourself? Whew. So I used to be really good at saying self-care and horrible at doing it. And so I've gotten mm-hmm. better at doing it. 
periodically I, I'll go check into a hotel for a few days just to sit and get my mind right. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes I take a trip. My birthday's coming, and so I'm leaving the country. Um, nice. But just being intentional. And even if I don't leave the country, I'll, like, unplug for a few hours and burn my sage candles and go sit somewhere, and I won't tell you everything that I do, but I relax. <laughs> <laughs> good 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 as long as you uh taking care of yourself uh, i do have another one though i seen um on social media that you're working with um eric gardner's daughter and sean ellis you know how is that how has that been so far i mean i've I'd never heard of sean ellis's story but that was during my mom's time you know and i just watched the netflix documentary and we know eric gardner's daughter but those are two impactful people honestly so how's that been it's been amazing. I actually, um, how did I meet Emerald? I don't even remember how I met Emerald. Oh, through Angie. So Angie is the wife of Andrew Kirst. Um, Andrew Kirst said 80 times he couldn't breathe in the back of a police car in Schenectady. And by the time he got to the police station, he was dead. Um, and so I started my relationship with Angie. She introduced me to Emerald. And Emerald is such a beautiful person, but a person who has went through so much trauma. She lost her father, then her sister died. And then she just recently lost her grandmother. She has custody of her sister's kids. And so we built a relationship and the rest is history. Um, with Sean, it's crazy. Me and Sean been friends for a minute because when I was having issues with my son, when he was like straddling that line and I thought I was gonna have to choke him out, I had reached out to the nation um and sean along with a couple of other brothers brother jamal came to my house to uh wrap around my son to make sure he didn't go the other way and we just had a relationship ever ever since then and then when trial four hit i refused to watch it for a while and then when i finally began to watch it i was like yo i started texting him in the middle of watching it like yo like you're so strong like i'm so sorry you had to experience what you were going through so on and so forth he reached out to me. He's like, yo, sis, I want to do something for the holidays. I actually talked to him earlier today. He's like, sis, I want to do something for the holidays. I'm like, all right, cool. I usually don't touch Christmas because there's so many people in this city that, that's, that plays Santa Claus that I stay away from Christmas. I usually just help on Thanksgiving and then I go mind my business. But him and Emerald wanted to do something for Christmas, so we did it. And it was amazing, and I'm glad. Um, and both of them have amazing stories and they're very powerful, impactful people. And so I try to help as much as I can between the two of them. Yeah. That's great. That's amazing. Honestly, I've been keeping up all the work you've been doing and it's honestly just great work for real, for real. Like, I don't care what nobody say about you. You good with me. That's what my cousin was saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> Listen, I don't care what they say about you. You good with me. Um, and so what's today? Today's Monday. Thursday, I leave to go be with Tamir Rice's mom and help her rally down in Cleveland, and then I'll be back and we'll protest on Monday. Nice, nice, nice. nice. All of that in in the in the midst of a pandemic. At that, that's what everybody would say. You're gonna do that during the pandemic, like you said. But it's like, like you said. So listen, let me tell you something. Stay in the house. <laughs> Poverty don't stop. Hunger don't mm -hmm. stop. Struggle don't stop. Tomorrow, I go with a U-Haul truck with my team and go pick up 5,900 pounds of food, mm -hmm. stock up. Then Thursday, on a plane. Sunday, I'll be back in Boston. Monday, I'll protest to the state house. Um, all of those things is necessary. I think people don't realize that it's multi-layered. 
it's not just one piece. It's multiple pieces and multiple layers of people doing this work that contribute to um, our liberation. And so, yeah, that's that. I always had like a, a, a I guess, a bone to pick with people who just protest and then they just protest. I'm the queen of telling people don't show up to the protest, go home and eat your cheese sandwich, and then check off the box that you showed up to the protest. What you gonna do? Mm-hmm. That is a fact. That's that's why I always have a bone to pick with people who just protest. Cause like, you can go out there and protest and take a picture, but what else do you do? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What what more? What more is there to it? You know that was my, always my biggest thing. Like, I personally not gonna get out there and protest, and then I'm gonna go home, and then I'm not gonna do anything, and then I'm still gonna post on my social media whatever it is that I want or do this, that, and the third, right? But if I can go out there and protest and then say afterwards, how can I continue to help? I think there's much more genuineness in that than just being a part of the crowd in the moment. So, uh, I, that's my right. two people protesting. <laughs> But all right, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up. You want to tell people real quick about Violence in Boston and the resources that you have to offer, so and, and how they can um get in touch with you or get in touch with Violence in Boston as a support. Absolutely. So they can visit violenceinboston.org. Um, they can message Violence in Boston on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. As far as resources, all of the resources is on the website, but I'll give you a quick rundown. We have food pantry, mental health. We have a transcend program that services young black men 15 to 28. Excuse me. We have free legal representation for young black men who do not have it, courtesy of a law firm that took my nonprofit on pro bono. Um, And we just recently purchased some emergency housing units for those suffering with not having somewhere to stay in the midst of trying to change their lives. And the work continues. Nice, 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 nice. Shelby, any last questions before we wrap on up? No, I feel like we touched on a bunch. I just feel enlightened listening to everything that you said. I feel like I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And I hope everyone pays attention and listens as well. Honestly, honestly, I think that this is great. And I and I truly do appreciate, you know, you hopping on, Monica, with all your schedule and whatnot. You making time is, is special and important to me. And I'm serious about what I said as far as how can we um, do collab together where we could do something to give back to our community, um, Valid TV as a whole, the team and I. So I'll definitely keep in touch with you about that for sure. But we're going to go ahead and absolutely and i'm everywhere so you can always message me and i will respond it may take me a little bit but i'll respond i got you got you thank you i appreciate it well like we always say this is valid tv vulnerability accountability leadership intentionality and demand all aspects of life and we always just here to talk about it make sure you follow us on instagram twitter all of that will be in the link below in the description below. We're going to put violence in Boston's um, information in the description below as well. If you are listening to us on Spotify or Apple podcasts, please make sure to head over to our YouTube and give us a subscribe and a like all that good stuff. And we will see you guys in the next episode. Peace.